All right, folks, well, we're going to go ahead and start with the power shot, keep it sun. I mean, this is a really powerful power shot. And if you notice in this picture right here, folks, I want you to get a mental picture of this because this, in a sense, is the best Sorah, the gospel. We need to understand this. This is the gospel. You know, sometimes a picture is worth thousands of words. Yeah. But it really, it, it's very befitting when I saw it because... We see in here the, the people dancing, we see the golden calf, we see Moses in here with the tablets. When we see something like this, okay, yeah, this is the gospel, but how is the gospel, and how do we connect this picture here today, how do we connect it for us here today? What we see in there, how do we connect it today? Do we have golden calves out there today? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, some are arguing, say no. You know, this is this was you know five thousand years ago. You you, you know you sugar it. You're crazy. We don't have golden caps today, and if we do, they don't. They definitely don't exist in America, right? They're, they're in the Middle East. <coughs> but folks, you know, my intention again is not to attack anything or religion or anything. But we are going to see. I'm just going to let the words speak for themselves. Because let's face it, folks. If we agree that the Word of God is alive, true. I just want to make sure we have the same page here. If the word of God is alive, true, we got that statement true. If the word of God was true back then, this is still true today. Yeah. If the word of God is wisdom, and it is literally breathed from God for instruction for his people, do you think it applies to us today? Or was it that maybe God thought that we were never going to make it this far? And it was only going to end in the wilderness. Think about it, folks. Because these are the things that we need to analyze. If this really golden calf, it's not really relevant for us today, well, then if we can argue that, then we can argue that really the word of God is not relevant for any of us today. Because all of it is old. <laughs> I mean, let's put it this way. A lot of people say the New Testament, right? Well, I only follow the New Testament. Well, how new is your New Testament? Let's face it, if we have a book that's over 15 years old, we consider that super old today by standards. But the Bible is over 2,000 years old. I say that's pretty old. So even if we look at the New Testament in its context, folks, it's something that we have been completely removed from that. Because first of all, a lot has changed, right? Mm -hmm. uh, since the first century to today, a lot has changed with technology and you name it, culture. So even in the New Testament, if it's something that we live by, the question still rises, how does it apply today? And I think this is one of the things that people more often than not wrestle with. How can I live a godly life? How can I use the word of God, literally, a, 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 a book that's over three, 4,000 years old? How can I apply that and use it as a map for my life today? It's a very good question. Well, folks, the reality is there's a lot here for us. We just need to return back. We need to return back to its foundation and understand how these things were delivered so that we can understand how to apply it for today. We don't want to over-spiritualize the Bible either, but at the same time, we don't want to take it for granted. We need to see it in the scope and how it was given and use the proper witnesses as well. So keep this up. We ended up last week with what? That's up, and that was the commandment to bring the olive oil. And we talked a little bit about the olive oil, right, and what it represented. 
and the spirit, and we talked about the menorah, Yeshua being the light of the world, and you know, we had a lot of great insights in this, and if you notice what's happening through the Torah, the Father is revealing bits and pieces through portions his character. You know, it's like he just opens the book and says, okay, here's all of me in one sentence. Although he probably could, but how much will we really get that from? He really won't understand that. So what he does is he gives us portions, <clears throat> bits and pieces of his character so that we can understand who he is. Why is it important to understand who he is? Well, because if we're going to follow him, we need to understand what we follow. True? If, we, if we're serving a master... Well, we need to understand the character of the master. It's kind of like if you're working for an employer, right? Then you need to understand your employer in order for you to get a promotion. You need to understand the likes and dislikes. It's in the same way. We need to understand who is the God that we serve so that we can bear witness of who he is. So now this week, we're going to pick up with Kittitsa, which is the taking of a census. And, you know, again, folks, translation doesn't always do a favor. Although it's not bad, it doesn't necessarily justify. That's the problem that we're having again with today. It's we're going from an original language to a translation, from another translation, from another translation to our translation. So it's not even a direct translation. It's a translation from a translation. And as I always express, folks, you cannot, and under any circumstances, can you translate a culture? Impossible to do. You cannot translate an idiom. They don't always make sense. Should be told. So this is what we need to understand when we're talking about the census. What is he referring to? Let's get into it. Kititsa opens up with this, and it's from the Hebrew word nasa. Okay, and what is nasa? What it means to lift something, to you know, to bear. He raised, but look at this. Was given into marriage also to sustain you, also to remove. What's very interesting about this word, kititsa, is the, the, the weight that it carries. It's not necessarily just about numbering. It's not limited, let's just put it that way, to just saying, okay, one, two, three, four, five, six. It's not just limited to that, but rather the reasoning for the numbering is what we need to focus on. Why was the numbering given? Why did he say kititsa? To lift, to bear, was raised. In other words, this numbering that Hashem is instructing to, for, for, for Moshe to do has nothing to do just to make sure that we have how many people we have. But this numbering was for the purpose of elevating them spiritually. I will submit to you today that you want to be numbered. You want to be a part of the census. What do we witness this, folks, in Scripture? Does 144,000 ring a bell? What do you think the 144,000? Why 144,000 for each tribe? We read in the book of Hazon, Revelation. What is, that, what is taking place in there? Why does the Bible reveal a number? It's revealing a number because these are the ones that have been elevated. These are the ones that he is bearing with. These are the ones that are given into marriage, which, by the way, even Revelation said so, the ones for the marriage supper. So there's a connection with the 144,000 in the book of Revelation. I'm not going to get into that now. But it connects with this parsha of the census of Kippitzah. Each and one of us want to be counted, folks. I know I want to be counted. We have to be counted. Because in that counting, it involves something, and that is being lifted up. So let's see what Hazal has to say about this. In Or Chaim, look what they reveal, which is exactly what the word in Hebrew 
literally testifies for. It says, this then is the meaning of this statement, Kitlitsa et Rosh. This expression refers to the lifting the head, similar to that which is stated in Genesis 40, 13. Pharaoh will lift your head, in which lifting the head refers to an elevation of stature. Even Khazar teaches back then that this, this whole Kitlitsa wasn't just a simple counting, but rather they were somewhat being promoted, if you want to call it. By who? By Hashem himself. Look, move on in here and what he says. In our verse, it means that oh, this mitzvah, you will lift the heads, i.e., raise the stature of the children of Israel, whose head have been what? Lowered. Let's put it this way, folks. If the, if the counting is for the purpose of elevating, right? True? Then there has to be a reason why you're being elevated. That means that you have been lowered. Think about it. You can't elevate if you're already elevated. You elevate something because it's lower. Now, according to Hazal, this elevating has to do because it was lower due to the failing of the incident of the golden calf. So Hazal is connecting this actually with the golden calf. Why the counting? Because not everything in the Torah is given in, 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 in uh, order, by the way. It's not always specifically in order. So they connect this incident in here of the counting which it makes perfect sense because if you read throughout the rest of scripture, whenever they went to warfare, there was a counting afterwards. Why? Well, because they had just been through warfare. They needed to see the casualties and all these different things. So in here is the same thing. It applies in the same way. Why the counting all of a sudden? Because they have been lowered through the sin of the golden calf. So there is a connection with Kititsa, which is the elevating in the sin of the golden calf, folks. Now, what does that reveal? Did the, the sin of the golden calf cause him to be lowered? Now, why is that important? Oh, I don't know, because maybe we don't want to commit the same thing. How many of you want to be lowered by him, or how many of you want to be elevated by him? So, this is, there's a lot in here that we need to understand, man. So, Exodus 30, 11 through 12, opens up by saying, Hashem said to Moses, when you take the census of the people of Israel after their number, okay, then each shall give a ransom for his life to Hashem. When you number them, that there be no plague among them when you number them. This is so prophetic. I'm going to share something with you. Let's just start with the number here. And in Hebrew it says, right? Then it says, Livkudehem. Which that's is the one that is translated as number here. Okay? The word for number is actually Lifkudehem. So let's look at that. After you number them. What is the purpose now? Because it opens up by saying that he is Vayidaber Yehovah and Moshe. He said to Moses, Kititza et the Aleph Tav, connected with the children of Israel. When you lift the Aleph Tav, the children of Israel, this is the reason. Lifkudehim, after you number them. Let's look at this word. It's from the word pakat in Hebrew. And it literally means to attempt to. To visit. To take care of. To invest with a purpose or a responsibility, essentially. Investing in an office, essentially. But what I found very interesting, that the weight of the word, really, in general, it means to attend or to visit. And, of course, investing with a purpose, which doesn't really... It doesn't come against your attending a visit. I'm going to share something with you folks. 
in scripture, when Hashem says that I'm coming to visit you, it's not necessarily always a good thing. It's not like he's coming in to say, hey guys, hamburgers are done? The visitation, as a matter of fact, in scripture, more often than not, when it talks about the visitation day, it's talking about the day of his return, which is a day of wrath. It is the great, terrible day of Adonai. Let's revisit this back. So if indeed pakah, which is talking about number, then it means to attend to, to visit, then it means that you need to attend to, right, to take care of, because of what? The day of visitation. In other words, let's go back here, because I don't want to confuse you. He is saying in here, when you take the census of the people of Israel and you elevate them, their number, the elevation of this number is for the purpose of his visitation. When he returns back, each and one of us have to be under the number of the census. The mark. The seal that Revelation talks about, and I sealed it with 144,000. That seal also connects with the numbering. Because two things are going to happen when he returns. Either you're going to be consumed, mm -hmm. or you're going to find favor in his eyes. It's not going to change the wrath. The wrath is the wrath. He's coming with wrath. Where are you going to stand in that wrath? Kind of like when he came to Egypt. Right? He came to Egypt and he pronounced judgment against Egypt. But who found favor? The children of Israel. In that, in that visitation, if you want to call it, in that wrath, if you want to call it, the children of Israel found freedom. Others were what? They were killed, unfortunately. So those who didn't have the blood of the lamb were unfortunately what? Killed. Those who did escaped Egypt and went on to move into freedom. So this whole numbering system, folks, Lifkodehim, plural, by the way, has to do with the attending, with the visitation and look, investing with a purpose of responsibility. In other words, now that you have been numbered, you have a responsibility. This connects with the gospel. If you have been numbered, you have, each and one of you has a responsibility. It's not just, oh, wow, Jesus, thank you, I've been numbered. Let me move on with my life now. No, now that you've been numbered, there's an extra responsibility that you need to carry you need to live up to that number. Look, let's move on in here. So what is the purpose in here? If we can move on to says, then each shall give after the numbering, right? The people they him, right? The visitation, the attending, entrusting you with a, with a position in an office. Then each shall give a ransom for his life to Hashem. That is a very problematic verse, folks. Do you understand that? Why is it problematic? Because unless you see this through prophecy, it's not going to make sense. Because where in Scripture it says that you can pay for your sins? As a matter of fact, I'll show you differently. So look, then he shall give a ransom for his life to Hashem. You are giving, you are paying for him, or you're paying him for your ransom. When you are number one, when what? When you number them. So this ransom, this half shekel, by the way, we're going to talk about right now, this half shekel only applies to those who have been what? Numbered, who have been lifted up. Let's see this in Hebrew. So it says, 
That's literally what is translated going back in here. Then each shall give a ransom. In Hebrew, it's venat nu ich kofed. What is venat nu ich kofed? Ich is me kofed in venat nu. So look, venat nu means to give. That's what it says, ich shall give. That translation, when it says ich shall give, it's venat nu, which means to give. That, that's right. But look, what's appointed was established. Now, what people don't realize that this word, the root of this word is venat nu, means a servant of the temple. Given to the sanctuary, even a citizen. This word is amazing, folks, that it connects to the one who is given into the temple service is also the one who's a citizen. What is connecting in here is about the royal priesthood. So each is given, meaning that you now have a responsibility because you are now a servant of the temple. We're talking about the priesthood, folks. What does Peter say? That you are now a royal priesthood. Was Peter going local? <clears throat> Peter knew exactly what this meant. Look, so it says that each and one shall give, meaning that now you are to give an atonement. That word in here is kofer, which means to cover. Look, to wipe off, to atone, to be forgiven. Look, but it also means to deny. How many of you actually knew that kofer also means to deny yourself? Because, you see, for him to cover you, for him to wipe off, for him to atone, for him to forgive, you need to be a servant to the temple, essentially a priest. And in order to be a priest, you need to learn to deny yourself. See, all these things should ring, shouldn't be really foreign to you. A lot of this is actually inscribed through the New Testament. It's all over the New Testament. Didn't Yeshua said that we are to deny ourselves? What was the purpose of denying yourself? He's talking about kofed, the atonement, the wiping off. Yes, you have been forgiven. Yes, there is grace. Yes, your sin has been erased. But yes, you have a responsibility. Yes, you are to deny yourself. Yes, you are to be a servant now. The question is, what temple are you serving? That's a good one. Are you, are you serving the temple of Baals? Are you serving the holy sanctuary? Mm -hmm. Which priesthood are you playing a role on? You know, there's more than one priesthood. Are you being a priest for Baals? Or are you being a priest for him? The holy one of Israel, amen? So look, 1 Peter 2.9 says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. Do you know that Peter was addressing in here both Jews and Gentiles? By the way, Apostle Paul was not the only emissary to minister to Gentiles. Peter did come across them from time to time. <laughs> a holy nation, a people for his own possession. By the way, that word possession connects with the half shekel, which we're going to see in just a minute. That you may be proclaimed the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous life. But you are a royal and a chosen priesthood, folks. That goes back to Venatnu. That is a servant of the temple, given into sanctuary. And in given into sanctuary, that means that you crossed over. And in crossing over, you became a what? A citizen. See, this whole thing of, you know, 
You are you and I am me. You are Jew and I'm a Gentile. You under one covenant, I'm under another covenant, folks. It's heresy. It's pure heresy. Pure, pure fabricated by the imagination of one man. The early 1600s. Possibly even before that. These are the things that we need to understand. It's not they and us. That vocabulary needs to change. It's not them and us. Romans chapter 11 says that we've been what? Grafted in. To who? Them, it says. So we need to, that mentality needs to change. That mentality needs to change. So look, moving on in here. So Peter says that you are the royal priesthood, and this is the reason why, again, we are to give. Now look, 1 Corinthians 6.19 says, Oh, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? That's why Benatnu, which is Natan, which is give, also says about giving into the sanctuary, giving into the temple. You are to tend the temple. Where's the temple, Richard? Look in the mirror. You. You are part of that extension of that temple as well. The temple is not just the outside body, folks. The temple is also the inside body. I'm not neglecting the outside. There's an outside temple, a physical temple. I'm not neglecting it. I'm just saying that you are also part of what's inside of the temple also is important as what's outside of the temple. True? So look what it says in here. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your what? Own. For you were what? Bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Essentially glorify God in your temple. So look, moving on in here. Exodus 30, 13 says, Each one who is numbered, now we're going to move into the half shekel. Now we understand that this elevation, the skititsa, has a lot to do with being elevated in the eyes of the Lord. Being elevated, meaning you are promoted now. That looks glorious in the heavens. Down here may not look so pretty. You understand what I'm saying? Down here, it may not look as glorious. Because a promotion in his kingdom doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to be something glorious here on this earth. On the contrary, it may be something worse. Talk to Rob Shaul when you see him. <laughs> he went from being glorious to what? Shipwreck, it says. Beaten. But he was promoted. Proof of thought. So, each one is number in the census shall give this. So after you number, this is what you are to give. Half a shekel of the sacred shekel, he says. Not just any shekel, the sacred shekel. Okay? The shekel is 20 garas, half a shekel as an offering to Hashem, it says. Everyone who is numbered in the census from 20 years old and upwards shall give Hashem's offering. The rich shall not give more. And the poor shall not give less. <coughs> then the half shekel. When you give Hashem's offering to make atonement for who? For your lives, he says. Now this is what it gets very interesting because it says that you have to give a half shekel. Not even a full shekel. A half a shekel. Okay? Well, we need to understand what he's talking about, a half a shekel, or the, the, uh, the concept of a shekel in itself. Look. The half shekel was a specific weight of silver... What does silver represent in the Bible? Redemption. Redemption. Okay? 
The, the shekel was specific weight silver that Moses instituted as a standard coinage, okay? Now, in the Torah, however, each part of the shekel represents a single soul. Because remember, each soul was to give what? Half a shekel. So the equivalency of a shekel is compared to that of a soul. My question is this. If the shekel represents a soul, right? But it's half, who fulfills the other half? Think about it. Look, let me share something with you folks. This is where it comes in. Psalms 47, 7 through 8 says this. Truly no man can ransom another. I just want to share that scripture because it's important. Or give to God the price of his life. It sounds like there's a contradiction in here with the half shekel. Because it sounds like the half shekel you're given as a means of atonement. It says this. But Psalm says that no man can atone. There's no amount of price that you can give to atone for your life, folks. Look. Or give to God the price of his life. For the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice. So how is it that the half shekel suffices? Well, this is where we need to understand really what Hazal teaches about. Again, these are things that we've been removed from, folks, and we don't understand. Because we never grew up in this culture. Look, this leads us to the coin of fire. Anybody ever heard of that? The coin of fire? Today, you've got to understand about the coin of fire. Look, the half shekel. And the connecting it with the coin actually of fire. Look, Hazat says in the Midrash Tanhumah, Rashi, it says that God showed Moses a coin of fire and said to him, like this, they shall give. And the Midrash Sharbah says each half shekel coin also corresponded to the heavenly coin of fire from beneath the throne of God. So this half shekel coin is no ordinary coin. Why? Because the inscription... You guys seen like a nickel, dime, quarters? Mm -hmm. Usually it's silver, right? And usually there's an inscription in it. Mm -hmm. Why is this always in an inscription? Why do we never see a dime or a nickel or any coin with no inscription whatsoever? This came from here. See, what Hazal is saying that the inscription that was in this coin of fire was essentially Hazal points it to the Mashiach himself. The, the inscription of the Messiah was actually in the coin which came from underneath the throne of fire. It makes perfect sense to me, folks. You know why? Because the word of God cannot contradict itself. There's no way a half a shekel can atone for your life. Think about it. But look, Yeshua himself, which I'm going to connect later, later Yeshua literally likened a man to a coin also which we're going to see the connection there. That's why uh, uh, Hazal is teaching that this, this shekel actually came from the heavenly throne. It's a heavenly coin specifically inscribed with the Mashiach himself. Now look at this. In Numbers Rabbah, says this. The Holy One, blessed be he, said this in reply. I do not ask for ransom according to my ability, he says. This is amazing, folks. How the ancient rabbis had this. He said, I do not ask to pay for ransom according to my ability. Why would he say that? But look, I'm going to continue reading in here. But only in accordance to their ability to pay. 
In other words, Hashem is saying, I'm not asking for a ransom according to the way I can pay. I'm asking for a ransom according to the way that people can pay. Do you understand that this is already connecting to the Messiah? Because how can the people pay? They can't. <laughs> That's the whole point. They can't. How can he pay? Well, he's holy. He doesn't have to pay. That's where you have to see where they're going with this. Look. Says this here, I do not ask for ransom according to my ability, but according to their ability to pay. Then he took a single coin of fire from beneath the throne of glory and showed it to Moses, saying, they shall give a coin that resembles this one. Look, this coin that they're talking about that resembles this one connects with the Messiah himself. Yeshua again likened a coin, a man to a coin stamped with the image of God. Look, that's why he said what he said in here. Matthew 22, 19. He said, show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Yeshua said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? And we know the answer. They said Caesar's. Then he said, therefore render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God. What does he mean by that? Because the half shekel is the inscription of the Almighty One himself, folks. That's why we have the inscription of Caesar in the coin, because it represents the part that we are missing of ourselves. See, the half shekel is, even Hazal even teaches, go to the extent to even saying this, that a half shekel represents a soul, which the Torah represents that, it says it. It represents each soul, but the other half is God. In other words, without the other half shekel, we are incomplete. We need the other half shekel to fulfill us because otherwise we are an empty vessel. Incomplete. This is what's so important about this half shekel. It points to the Mashiach himself. The heavenly coin, the only one, because there's no earthly coin that can literally atone for you. Make sense? It's the heavenly coin that does that. The inscription of your Messiah in the heavenly coin. They can, and silver represents what? Redemption. Look, Shadow Messiah Volume 2 says, even though the earthly coin is insufficient to pay the ransom for a man's life, the Lord accepts our token payment, so to speak, and he pays the real ransom with the heavenly coin. In other words, the heavenly coin is the half shekel which points to the Messiah. That is the one that is sufficient. But what's better, what's even better about this is that you play a role. Because you see, he completes half, you need to give in your other half now. And what is this giving of this other half? Well, we just talked about it. Remember when it says nothing that you are to give? You are given into the sanctuary now. You are now a servant. You are now to deny yourself. That's you playing your role now in giving your half shekel because he has given his half for your atonement. That's the gospel, folks, in a nutshell. Giving and surrendering your life to him completely. And that means that we need to tear down in our minds all preconceived ideas of who we think God is mm -hmm. and line up with what his word says it is. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I don't care if my church has been doing this for 30 years. I don't care if we have this tradition. By the way, not all traditions are bad. But if it's a tradition that comes against his word, <laughs> then it's best to check it. Because right. that means that you're not fulfilling your half shekel. He did his part already. 
the heavenly token from, from heaven has already been fulfilled. The question is, are you going to play your half? Are you going to give, give your half? That given not half, folks, may sound easy, but it's not always necessarily easy. Because you're giving your life. You're denying your own desires. And what does that interpret to? It means that at times you might have to forsake families. At times you might have to forsake friends. Best ones. At times you might have to forsake mama and daddy. What do you think Yeshua said? I have not come to bring peace, but a what? A sword. To bring a division. Because not everybody's going to accept them, folks. And you're going to have to, you can't play middle games in here. You can't say, well, I want to please you, God, but at the same time, I want to please my family or my friends or whoever your idol is. Let's put it that way. It's either or. You choose him or you might as well just don't play religion anymore because you're not doing a favor to him or yourself. So now we're going to connect this, folks, with the golden calf because remember, the hash shekel was about giving half and giving your all and the connecting with the numbering, which is the elevating of yourself. The Lord is elevating you in his kingdom. And the reason why he's elevating your kingdom is so that you can be a half shekel for him. Amen? Amen. Now we're going to understand what does this all mean. Because according to Hazal, the only reason that this numbering was given is because of the incident of the golden calf. So let's find out what is the incident with this, what, golden calf, folks, that we hear so much about. By the way, this is even this is even in the New Testament as well. So look, Exodus 32, 1 says, When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has happened to him. Now, before, before we continue in Exodus 32, 1, it is important to remember, folks, that even in this parasha, which I'm not going to talk about today, but I do want to bring a point. In this parasha, he continues to remind them about their what? Their Sabbaths? The gatherings? The feast? Why is he mentioning that in this parasha? Didn't he already talk about that in Exodus chapter 20 and 12? Why is he bringing the Sabbath again? Why is he bringing the, the, the feast? Again, what is the purpose? You see, you got to see the way the ancient rabbis saw this, folks. There is, an, there is a thrash in here, if you want to call it, a layer that you're not seeing, that is being revealed. You have the elevating, you have the half shekel, which we talked about today. Then you got, remember my Sabbath, remember my feast, but now you also have the golden calf. Is <laughs> this all thrown in the same plate? They're not really against one another. They all testify to one another. Something happened with the golden calf that caused Hashem to elevate them. They caused him to bring the half shekel. But by the way, who caused him to say, by the way, guys, remember my Sabbath. Remember my holy feast. Essentially, remember my covenant. Look. Moving on in here, with that in mind, that he is reminding, he is asking them to remind them about the Sabbath and my feast and all these different things in the covenant. It, what will be the reason? This is when it opens up in Exodus 32.1, when that people saw that Moses' delay came, it came down from the mountain. Let's look at this in Hebrew. 
In the Hebrew open so by saying, Vayira ha'am ki boshesh, Moshe leredet min ha'ar, it says. Vayira ha'am ki boshesh is where the key and the understanding of what's happening in here that we don't see it, unfortunately, in the English. This is why it's so important to come back to Torah and come back to Hebrew so we can understand this. Because when we read this in English, it just says when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain means nothing other than the fact that Moses took his sweet time. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's it. That's as far as we go. What more can we go from here? There's nothing more. But in Hebrew, vayira carries something very important. What is vayira? It's the Hebrew word ra or yara, which means to see, right? But this idiom of vayira connects with actually an experience. So something happened to the children of Israel at this very moment, okay? That they vayira, they experienced, they saw, literally, they saw something. Very, very little. They caused him to what? What is boshesh? Look. It is translated as bosh, which is translated as delay, which is true. But the, like Hebrew is so in-depth, folks, that it's teaching you something about this delay. What happened during this delay? To be ashamed to fornicate. So, it means that they saw something, they experienced something, and upon their waiting, the delay, they became to what? Fornicate. See, what is teaching us something, folks, how many times in Scripture we read about wait upon the Lord? And what are we to do to wait upon the Lord? What is our position to do while we wait upon the Lord? We have to worship Him. Part of the Spirit, the gifting of the Spirit, folks, that Galatians is talking about, is patience. <laughs> right? We are to have what? Patience. Because without patience, then we will do what they did. Keep us shesh. We will grow weary and we will start fornicating. What the opening of uh, uh, Exodus 32.1 is teaching us right now that the children of Israel fornicated because there was a delay, but not just because there was a delay, because there was an experience. What was this experience? Well, we're going to turn to Hazal to see what he has to say about this. Look, in the Or Chaim, look what it teaches about this experience. Ultimately, the word saw may be understood in its literal sense in accordance with what our sages of blessed memory said. In Shabbos 89.8, cited by Rashi, says this, that Satan claimed that Moses was dead. Yeah. And to prove that he came and showed the people an image of darkness and gloom and an image of Moses' funeral buyer, indicating that he had died. Now, we can take this as we want as a grain of salt, but let me tell you something, folks. I believe it generally because you know what? Those images, and when Satan comes to attack, usually it is very vivid. We conceive it in our mind. We believe it in our heart. And guess what? It becomes emmet now. It becomes true. <coughs> Most offenses, folks, between believers today... I believe it's because stuff like this. 
Satan comes, cursed be his name. He comes, shows you a picture. And what does that picture look like? It could be in your own imagination, folks. You experience it. You know what? I think, I think he is mad at me. You notice that he walked in today? He didn't even say hello to me. Yep, he's mad. Uh, oh, he's mad. He took an offense when I told him that I thought he gained a little bit of pounds. <laughs> we believe it. We conceive it in our mind. Where do you think that conceiving is coming from? Yes. Right here. Right here. See, because the job of the enemy is to what? Be a stumbling block for you. What is our job? To fight him back. Amen. See, what happened in here, I believe generally what all Haim is teaching in here, that Satan showing that Moses was literally dead. Which is, we're going to see why I believe it. Again, I always go back to the scripture, folks. I use the sages of Israel because I believe there's a lot of wisdom. And I'm not too proud to believe that I know more than them. So, there's a lot that they wrote that actually collaborates with the Bible. A lot of it. And we're going to see in this case, what we're talking about Moses' death, we're going to see the proof of that. So look, therefore it states that people saw, meaning that they saw the things mentioned above, which indicated that Moses had died. So let's pause in there for a minute, because now the people believe Moses is dead, which why thing he's delaying. Now we're going to understand the statement that comes next. This is going to be very powerful. Look. So because of this, it says, they said, they gathered together to Aaron and said to him, up, make us gods, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this, who, as for this Moses, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. What's very interesting about this, folks, and we're going to see this in the Hebrew, is that many people believe in here that it's talking about, they said, make us gods, that it's talking about the supreme Elohim, God. But we're going to see it here that this is totally not true. Look at the context in here when it says, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. Because why? As for this who? Moses. It doesn't say for at this Hashem, at this Yehovah, we don't know what's become of him. Now we need to understand that this word here for gods, we're going to see the translation for that. It opens up like this. It says, Kum lanu what? Elohim. By the way, this word Elohim here is in plural. It is in plural. But do you know that in the opening of the Bible in Genesis chapter 1, it says, Bereshit bara Elohim. Do you know that this is the same word that is used in the Bible in the beginning chapter of Genesis? And what do we read in Genesis chapter 1? In the beginning... God, singular, created. It doesn't say gods, plural. We need to understand that this word Elohim is a generic title that it can also mean magistrates. For instance, we just went through the parashah of Mishpatim. And in Mishpatim, the judges were known as Elohim. That's why Yeshua said, you are gods also. He's not talking about that you are deity. It's talking about God means also judges, magistrates. See, we are, sometimes we just, again, it's little things like that that throws us off. So let's revisit this back here for a minute. 
When it says, up make us gods, it's not necessarily talking about God, the supreme God. It's talking about judges. Now, that makes sense. Why? Because right in here, immediately, what does it say? For this who? Moses. Moses. So they're connecting Moses with gods. Gods means judge. Wasn't Moses a judge? Mm -hmm. I'm just saying. Wasn't Moses a judge? A shofet? Wasn't Moses leading them? Yes. Wasn't Moses the man standing or acting as an intercessor between God and the people? Yes. The people are not concerned about God's folks, as in God. The people are now concerned about who's going to be the intercessor now for us. Because Moses is dead. This is important. Why is this important? Because arguably today, most people would not deny the existence of a supreme God. I don't care what religion you go to, except unless you're Hindu. But for the most part, most religion believe in the existence of one supreme God. True? Jehovah's Witnesses believe in, you know, you name it, Christianity, Protestant movement, Catholicism, uh, even the Muslims believe in the one supreme. Amen. Our argument today, folks, our argument today is not about God. This is what we're this is what we misunderstanding. Our argument today, just like in here, it wasn't about God. It was about the Messiah, the intercessor. Who is he? Isn't that true today? We have Allah. Well, not Allah. We have Muhammad, which is the intercessor for Allah. We have Jesus. We have Yeshua. And it goes on and goes on. The list goes on and on. But we all claim that there is one supreme God. There's no arguing that. That's exactly what's happening here. They're not arguing about the supreme God. They're arguing about Moses. Who is he? What happened to him? Look, let me go on here. But what's interesting about this, that it opens up by saying, Kum asa lanu Elohim. Kum, what is kum? Kumi ori means to arise. Kum also is associated with resurrection. So, <laughs> very interesting. Kum asa. It meaning rise up, or it can even be interpreted as resurrection, the understanding of resurrection. Asa lanu Elohim. Revive and make and shape and form a new judge for us. Are you getting this? Because Moses is dead in their mind. Now revive Moses and look. Asa, what is Asa? To fashion and to form something. Asa lanu, for us, Elohim. Asher, look, yilchu lifnehem. Now that's translating, let me go back here, because you really have to see this. That is translating here, up make us gods who shall go before us. Right? In Hebrew, it's saying, kum asher lanu Elohim, asher yilcha lifnehem. This word, Yilcha is very important. Yilcha literally means to transfer, listen to this, transfer the power and authority. So what they're really saying is, 
rise up for us and make for us a judge like a Moses, and we're going to transfer that power to him before us. After Yeshua's death, he resurrected. True? Mm -hmm. Is he the same as the one before he died? Technically, yeah, but is he really in the world's eyes? Mm -hmm. Because you see, now we have another Jesus. They have scum resurrected, and we have fashion <laughs> according to our likeness, and we have transferred that Yehud, we have transferred that authority, that power now to that. But what happens when you transfer an authority? You take it away from somebody else. That means that Moses has no authority today. Could it be true? Yeah. Well, just look around the world. This is amazing, folks. I don't know if you've seen what I'm seeing in here, but this is really powerful. They literally transferred the authority and took Moses out because they thought he was dead. And by default, if you want to call it today, we still kind of treat Yeshua as if he's dead. Because we have resurrected a new one, and now this new one, it's nothing like the old. Look, let's go on in here. Because it says, Kize Moshe, because as far as this Moses, Kize Moshe Haish Asher Haalanu, that is talking about the man in which brought us off Meeretz, the land of Mitzrayim, we do not, Lo Yadanu, Mahayalo, it says, Lo Yadnanu. We do not know. Yes, from the Hebrew word Yodeka. Meaning, we don't know. Basically, you got to see the really the, 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 the deeper layer. We're saying we don't know anything about Moses anymore. We don't know what happened to him. We don't know where he's at. As far as I'm concerned, he's dead. So that's why we ask you to come to resurrect and make me a new one. We, unfortunately, folks, we all been guilty of this. The golden calf, folks, carries a lot of deep layers of meanings that I don't even have the time today to even discuss it. But through the years, when we go through the Pasha, we're going to be discussing more and more and more. And we will even do teachings on it once we get the building. Because I am going to be doing a lot of teachings on the golden calf. There's so many layers in here that is unbelievable. It's going to blow your mind completely to see how it really relates to us today. So it says, Lo yadea meha ya lo. We do not know. We do not know what has happened to him. Lo. Look what Ramban, the Ramban says in this. Rather, they were seeking another Moses. This is amazing how the sages saw this. The Ramban says that this whole thing with Yodea and the whole thing with Arise and make us new gods had nothing to do with the, with the supreme God, Yohebabhe. It had to do with Moses. It had to do with the, basically, because remember in Judaism, Moses is known as what? The Mashiach. Moses, you got to understand this, is prophetic of the Mashiach. Put it back in its context in the culture. So when we talk about Moshe in Judaism, Moshe is known as a prophecy of the Mashiach. So in here, in the golden calf, we can only say that the Mashiach died and a new one resurrected and they fashioned this new Mashiach in accordance to their likeness. Wow. Amazing. See, when you put it all in the culture and the perspective, it's not just Moses, it's the Messiah. Did Yeshua said that he came in the likeness of Moshe? Yeah. 
Doesn't Deuteronomy said that the, the statement for, for a false prophet? Doesn't he say that you believe in Moses, you believe in him and me? He's talked about that in John chapter 6. See, these things are not coming against it, folks. It's just elaborating what we're talking in here. So look, rather they were speaking, another, uh, seeking another Moses. They said, Moses, who showed us the way from Egypt and to here, for all the journeys were according to the word of Hashem through Moses. We'll define that in Numbers 9.23. It's now lost to us. Let us make for ourselves another Moses. Who will show the way before us according to the word of God through it. See, what we need to understand, folks, is that that's the reason why this says in the scripture that they arose the next day and they offer sacrifices to who? Hashem. Hashem. Literally, that's what it says. They were not replacing God. They were replacing Moses, the Messiah. The intercessor. The intercessor. This is why it's so important to understand. This is, the, this is the disease that we're dealing with still today. This is still echoing today, folks. Yeah, we all believe in God. But we don't believe in the same Messiah. It's interesting that the Ramban actually saw this as well. That they were talking about another Moses. Look. This is the explanation for their mentioning that they were lacking what? The man who brought us up. They didn't say the God that brought us up. The man who brought us out of Egypt, right? And not the God who brought us them up from Egypt. For what they felt they needed was a man of God, basically. A man of God. That's what we need today, right? A man of truth of God. This is what we're battling today, folks. The question is, what man of God are you serving? What Mashiach are you serving? By the way, every time we say the word Mashiach, Messiah, Christ, whatever you want to call it, they're not synonymous, they're not the same. Everybody has a Mashiach. Everybody has a Mashiach. The question is, whose Mashiach are you serving? Are you serving the one in the likeness of Moshe? Or are you serving the Mashiach in the likeness of Rome? Which one are you serving? Look. 2 Corinthians 11.4. Look what it says in here. Apostle Paul, you understood this very well. For if someone comes and proclaims what? Another Yeshua. What was it that happened in here that the Ramban is talking about in the incident of the golden calf? That they were resurrecting and they were imaging and they were fashioning another Moses. Apostle Paul here and to the Corinthians says that he fears that they will what? Proclaim another Yeshua. Why would he use this terminology of another Yeshua, folks? Because Apostle Paul would have understood the Ramah. He would have understood the commentaries of the sages of Israel. He would have understood Torah. Remember, he was the rabbis of rabbis, right? Apostle Paul. His connection in here and using this wording is very, very specific. This goes back to the golden calf. So when we're reading this in the New Testament, another Yeshua, that is another Messiah, what is the parasha that should come to your mind? Kititsa, the golden calf. They fashion another Moses. This is what Apostle Paul is talking about in here. A golden calf. 
Look. Proclaims another Yeshua than the one we proclaim, or if you receive a different spirit. How many people say we're spirit driven? <laughs> there's spirits out there. Just like there's lots of Jesuses and Yeshuas out there. Just because somebody comes to you and say, well, I believe in God and I believe in Jesus doesn't automatically qualify folks as a man or woman of God. You're going to walk out of this assembly, folks. You might hate me, but at least you're going to be equipped. Amen. <laughs> because you're going to be soldiers. You're not going to be walking around in here in this town. Oh, yeah, I met this man of God. No. Show me that he's a man of God. That's the fruits of the man of God. Because, again, there's a lot of Moseses, there's a lot of Yeshua's, there's a lot of spirits, right? Look, you receive a different spirit than for the one you receive, or if you accept a different what? Gospel. gospel. Well, he believes in the gospel. Okay, there's lots of gospels. See, these words really mean nothing, folks. That's what I'm saying. There's a lot of copycats for the gospel. There's a lot of copycats for the spirit. There's a lot of copycats for the Messiah. There's a lot of copycats. Because everybody has fashion. And Messiah. By the way, when you fashion something new, everything else is altered. That means that if you fashion a new Moses, i.e. Messiah, that means that the gospel is different. Because it's no longer the same gospel. It cannot be the same gospel. It's a different model. It's a different gospel altogether. That's why, folks, even in this ministry, we're going to send people out in here. We're not going to be proclaiming the good news like the good news has been proclaimed for the last 1,700 years. Here's a piece of bread. Jesus loves you. Get out. Love you. You're saved. No. We are going to establish the gospel, the gospel that has been lost, the true gospel. Come back. Repent. Teshubah. Come back to his word. Enough of the games of plain religion. He says, from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. The, the fear of Apostle Paul, there was a reason why he feared. Look at us today. Look at us today. The very thing that in Corinthians he was worried about, by the way, Corinthians was a very pagan church. He was rebuking constantly. If Paul were to come out of his grave today, oh my God. <laughs> He's probably he's he's probably doing cartwheels in his grave right now. I mean, this is I mean it, it's the things that he feared. We're seeing it today. Yep. He feared that the world will see another golden calf out of world living, and it's come true. Look, Baiz Halevi says this, folks. The people knew that the sacrificial service was performed by a specific person. They knew this. Aaron and in a specific place, the tabernacle. They thought, therefore, that they had the right and the need to create another such vehicle for their service. In effect, to design their own tabernacle that would suit their needs as they saw it. Folks, we have done exactly just that. See, these words echo thousands of years, and we see it today. They thought they had the right to do this, just like the people of Israel when they were on the mountain, when they were on the mountain, the base of the mountain, they thought 
Moses is dead, it gives us the right now to cool, to resurrect, and asa, fashion another one that's completely different than the one that got us here. Look, here lay their mistake, they says. Jews cannot custom tailor their religion or their sanctuary. <laughs> well, folks, you know what? This resonates very well because we have custom tailored all kinds of fashion form of religion out there today. You name it. It's called custom tailor. That, I think that's a very appropriate word. This is why it's important, folks. You know, I'm going to share something with you. Hashem gave, in Leviticus 23, He specified how He wants to be approached. Now this, I want to I wanna confirm and understand this, that I'm not against specifically celebrating feasts outside of Leviticus 23. Because scripture proves that wrong also. You got Hanukkah, which Yeshua celebrated. I mean, there's all the things that we see in here. Esther, Purim, I mean, all these different things. We didn't see that the father became angry and struck them to death. He didn't say you were committing idolatry. The problem is when we start celebrating feasts in order to honor the one true God, the creator. There's a difference between celebrating a feast in memory of, like 4th of July, you know, so on and so on. You know, these are things that really are not connected with any form of worship. But the feasts that we find today in the Protestant movement in general that are connected directly with the worship of the one true God, folks, is what we need to be very careful. Because whether you realize it or not, you're going to start custom tailoring your religion and you're going to start forming a golden calf. I'm not one of those, well, show me where is that in the Bible. It's not always necessarily what's in the Bible. It's, you know, this is the question that you need to ask yourself. Why do we do what we do? Why? You know, if the Protestant movement today doesn't celebrate Passover, right? But we celebrate Easter instead. Okay, why do we celebrate Easter? Why the eggs? Why do we paint the eggs? What is this? I mean, why wouldn't you want to investigate this if it has to do with bringing? And because remember, these are feasts that you are bringing as an offering to him, to honor him. As a matter of fact, everybody says the same thing. We do this to what? Honor Jesus, honor God. Okay, nothing wrong with that. But the question still needs to arise. What is the connection between Jesus and the painted eggs? <laughs> I'm just saying, because, you know, if I'm going to cook a lamb and, you know, Passover, we're doing a lamb, you ask me, Richard, why are you boiling that? No, I'm not boiling. Why are you grilling this lamb? Why are we eating lamb today? Why are we eating a lemon bread today? You have a right to ask. But you know what's so beautiful about that? That every question that you ask me, I will go back to the Bible and point out you visit it, right? And this is the reason. What can you possibly say about Easter? And now, okay, pause. Now comes the question. If it's not really something that he ordained for him to come and approach him, okay, wouldn't that be a golden captain? Because remember in the golden calf, I didn't put it in here. It says that the next day they got up and they offer peace offerings. And they, it says they commemorated a feast, it says. 
Wow. I don't know how much more spelled out can that be for you. They instituted a feast to honor God through the means of the golden calf. In other words, the golden calf gave them the green light to worship God however they wanted to. Looks like a duck. Walks like a duck. More than likely it is, folks. We have no right to change what the Father has instituted in his word. I don't care who you, who you represent and what religion you represent. These are the things that we need to question because in Jeremiah 16, 19, if you read Jeremiah 16, chapter 16 as a whole, read the whole thing. It's talking about the latter days and the things that are going to happen. And it, and, and it ends, in, interesting enough, that it ends with 1619, where it says that on that day, the Gentiles will come from the four corners of the earth and say, our fathers have inherited falsehood. I will submit to you today as a congregation, folks, and I pray that none of you will be one of those. That none of you will be the ones that comes for the end of the earth and say, our fathers have inherited falsehood. And that you do not raise that generation that's in here to be a part of that prophecy. Rather, that you will be the ones that say, they grab the hold of the zitzes and say, we hear that God is with you. Let's be a part of that prophecy. Not the ones who are coming saying we learn falsehood. But the ones that actually are going to say, we have come to you, we are grabbing the zitzits. And saying, we hear that God is with you. We want to go with you. Why would they be grabbing the corner of the zitzits? Who wears zitzits today? Torah observance. Mm -hmm. On that day, when the Bible talks about on that day, it's talking about the great terrible day of the Lord. On that day, the people will come and grab the four corners of the garments of the zitzits and say, show me your God. We hear he's with you. It's there, folks. You cannot erase it. And at the same time, it also says, those will come and say, we learn falsehood. This is why we're returning back to the word, folks. This is why it's so important to understand this. Because if we love him, we're approaching, isn't he a holy God? Yeah. Well, how many times in the Bible says that I am what? Holy, he says. Ani mm hakodesh. -hmm. So if he is holy, can you approach a holy vessel with the Father? Here better yet, can you approach a holy vessel with something that's common? Now, common doesn't necessarily mean that it's evil. Common, I'm saying. Can we offer a common offering to a holy God? No. That's the whole thing, folks. It doesn't necessarily, because a lot of people will argue and say, well, what we're doing is not evil. It doesn't have to be evil. It can just be common. Can you bring a common offering? It's a very, very legitimate question. A common offering to a holy, perfect God. No, you can't. This is the reason why this stands. So we'll end with this, Jude 1.4. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people, notice what it says, not godly people, ungodly people 
who pervert the grace of our God into what? Lawlessness. What is lawlessness? The opposite of lawful. You know, my grade point average, I think it was only like 3.3, 3.2 maybe. Maybe 2.2. But the opposite of lawlessness is lawful. As a matter of fact, this Greek word in here literally is nomia. Nomos. So they're taking the grace, they're using the grace to commit lawlessness. What did they do with the golden calf? What didn't they just come out of grace? They did. They were redeemed. They found favor. As a matter of fact, in this parasha, they didn't go into it. It gives you these seven attributes of our Lord God. Graceful, forgiving sins and iniquities. And he goes on and on the list of who he is, his character. They obtained grace, but what did they do with that grace? They went ahead and fashioned a golden calf. That's exactly what Jude 1.4 is telling us. Taking the grace of our God and turning into lawlessness. And deny our only master and Lord Yeshua, the Messiah. Do you know that when you turn his grace into lawlessness, whether you realize it or not, you are essentially denying the master Yeshua? I mean, I will never deny Yeshua. You are denying him. By taking his grace and teaching people that now you can commit all these abominations and that grace covers you, you are denying him. Why are you denying him? We learned this today already. Why are you denying him? Because remember what happened in the golden cow? They fashioned another one. So if you're fashioning another one, you're denying the other. This makes perfect sense. You fashion something, you fall in love with it, you have denied the truth. And this is what we need to understand, folks, that we don't want to get caught up denying Yeshua, the one true Messiah, the one of Israel. John 1, and we end with this one. Philip found Nathaniel and said to him, we have found him. Who is the him? Yeshua. Yeshua. They were excited. We found him, guys. Look, we have found him. We have found him of whom who? Oh. Moses in the law. And also the prophets wrote, Yeshua of Nazareth, son of Joseph. Yeshua has to be the one that comes in the likeness of Moses in the law. The true redeemer of Israel. Not the other one, the true one, folks. So I want to leave you with this. Remember, the one true Messiah of Israel is the one who comes in the likeness of Moses in the law and the prophets. Who wrote about him let us let us learn who he is this is the reason why we're here today all of you are here today hopefully for that reason and only that reason to learn more about who he really is and let us you know it's, it's kind of like relearning now relearning who God is relearning who the Messiah is we need to come like like babies like children and empty our cup completely of all that we have learned and come learn who he truly is. Because if we don't do that, folks, what we're going to be doing is we're going to be battling our preconceived ideas. We're going to be battling the other Moses. We're going to be battling the other Jesus. And we're never going to really truly be able to obtain his truthfulness in our heart. So I want to challenge each and one of you. Learn who he is. Take the opportunity. Change your heart. Circumcise. Pray to the Lord. 
to change your heart, to circumcise your heart, to circumcise your mind, to circumcise your eyes for everything so that you can see him and know who he is and follow him and fall in love with him. Amen. That's the key. Fall in love with who he is. And make that pledge to him today. Amen? Amen. Blessed be his name, folks. Get up, 
Make us gods who will go out before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up from Egypt, we don't know what's become of him. And as Richard taught today, that word for gods is H430, and it's the word Elohim. We hear that a lot in scripture to refer to the supreme God, but also as he taught today, it refers to the magistrates, the judges, the ruling system of Hashem. Where do we find the ruling system of how he you know, judges his kingdom? Well, we find that in the Torah. He gave it to Moses, the books of Moses, those five little dirty old books that everybody says are done away with. That is Hashem's kingdom. That is his character. Um, and then that word that says uh, go, and they shall go out before us, the word go. It's not bow, or it's not some of the other words that we've heard. Um, it's actually H1980, and that word is halak. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> which is the root word for halaha, which has to do with your walk, your faith, how you, your manner of life, the way that you live your life, the way that you follow Hashem, your form of worship. So when we put these two things together in context, as Richard again, he already discussed, we're gonna see this again in this half Torah, these people wanted something that was more familiar to them. They didn't want to have to deal with the burden of Moses. And now that Moses was apparently gone and out of their life, or as they said, we don't know what has become of him, perhaps he's dead, or maybe he just went up there and left, and now we're just stranded here. They wanted something that was more personal to them, something that they were more familiar with. And essentially, when they cast out the authority of Moses, they were essentially disregarding the covenant of Hashem. Because Moses isn't the one who spoke those words. God spoke the words to Moses. Moses delivered it to the people. So when we disregard Moses, we disregard God. <laughs> That's kind of the, the, the order here. Um, and one thing I also wanted to bring up was that along these lines, before Moses even went up onto the mountain, he actually gave the books to the people. How many of you knew that? He actually gave the Torah to the people before he went up. Why would God do that? Well, because he's very good at giving his children instructions and a path and a model to follow before he leaves. Because, you know, it's kind of like your kids. If you don't tell them, okay, I need you to have these chores done, I'm gonna go to town, but I need you to do the dishes, do this, do that. And if you don't give them that list of things to do, when you come home, can you expect that it's done? No. <laughs> You have to give them the instruction. They have to have that a part of their life. That, okay, I know that when mom goes to town, this house better be clean when she gets back. It needs to be a part of them. In the same way, our house, our temple needs to be clean before Hashem gets back. That's why he gave us the Torah, so that we have that model. So where do we, do we find this in the Torah? It's going to be in Exodus 24.4. And it starts out saying, And Moses wrote all the words of the Torah, and he rose up early in the morning. And he built an altar under the hill, 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. And he set young men of the children of Israel who would offer the burnt offerings and who sacrificed the peace offerings of oxen unto the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and he put it into basins. Half the blood he sprinkled on the altar. What did he do with the other half? He took the book of the covenant and he read it in the audience of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has said we would do. So Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and on the book. So he had, the children of Israel had the book. They had the instructions, just like today, we have the instructions before he left. So there was no reason for them to deviate. They had the instructions. 
They have the judgments. What do we do if this happens? It was right there. They just had to go to the book. But that was too hard. <laughs> so, <laughs> oftentimes we hear as a justification for something that we don't want to do, that God will have mercy on you. He'll have compassion on you. Oh, he'll forgive you. Unfortunately, as merciful as God is, when he gives an instruction and we fail to do it, he's going to be just like our parents. We're going to have to suffer that punishment. We're the ones who are going to get into trouble. Maybe we won't get grounded for the rest of the month. Maybe it'll only be seven days. But he is going to exercise judgment. That's what the fear of the Lord is, is knowing that he is righteous. He's going to do what's righteous. We didn't do what was righteous. We need to start doing what's righteous. In Exodus 32, 7, the Lord expresses how he feels about the children of Israel departing from the manner and the form of worship and even the commandments that he had appointed to Moses to give to them. And it starts out saying, The Lord said to Moses, Go down, because your people that you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned quickly aside from the way that I commanded, and they have made for themselves a golden calf, and it have worshipped it and have sacrificed to it, and have risen up and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. That word for gods in the plural is Elohim, what we just learned in the Torah portion. They weren't calling these things Baal and Ashra. They weren't calling these things Buddha. They were calling this calf Hashem, Yehovah, whatever you want to pronounce his name. They were not coming up with some completely different new god. They just worshipped him in a different way. <laughs> From this point, we know what happens next. There's a division that needs to be made. Moses comes down off the mountain. He sees what the children are doing. He grinds up the calf. And then he says to the people, whoever's with me, come to me. And the people who decide to continue worshiping the calf, judgment falls on them. Which is something that we really, truly want to avoid in our lives, which is why we're here, why we're learning. Um, and from that point, we can also see as a great example that Hashem really does not find mixed worship as appealing as we think he does. Uh, remember what he said what was said to Lazarus and the rich man. Lazarus was, you know, the, that poor servant, and the rich man disregarded him. But when the both died, the, la <clears throat> the rich man saw Lazarus and wanted Lazarus to come and serve him, even when he was dead. <laughs> And to give him water to drink, right? That's the story. Um, in Luke 16, 29, Abraham said to the man, well, let's go back a little bit further. So the problem here is that this man, after seeing what judgment was like, what awaited for the people who enter into this judgment, he didn't want his family to suffer this punishment. So he wanted Abraham, or actually he wanted Lazarus, to rise up from the dead and go to the people and teach them the gospel and to you know get them to repent. But Abraham was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. You're not getting Lazarus to go and do your work for you. No, you had your time, you had your fun in the sun, mm -hmm. this is it. So Abraham says to him, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. But the rich man said, no, Father Abraham, but if one would only go to them from the dead, they would repent. And Abraham said to him, if they will not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they persuade it, even though one would rise from the dead. Mm -hmm. Two people we know of in scripture rose from the dead. 
One of those was Lazarus. Mm -hmm. But the man who brought him from the dead, who rose also, was who? Jesus. And what did Messiah say about this? He said, if you do not believe Moses, you would not believe me, because he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Why would he say that? Because he was teaching from Moses. How about here when he says in Luke, why do you call me Lord, Lord, but do not do the things which I say? Whoever comes to me and hears my sayings and does them, I will show you to whom he is like. He is like the man who built a house, who dug deep, laid the foundation on a rock. And when the flood arose and the stream beat vehemently upon that house, it could not be shaken because it was founded upon the rock. This is where God wants our faith. He wants us to stand firm in that stream and hold on to him, which is his word. The word of God, which is the Torah, and the desire to pursue and follow the books of Moses has been given to us in a sense as that dividing line. It's a test of our faith to see if we really truly desire the God of Israel, the God of all creation, or if we just desire to play religion, essentially. Remember what the pastor said with Yeshua, and he confirms this. Yeshua confirms that this is the dividing line when he says in Matthew, do not think that I have come to bring peace on earth, for I have not come to bring peace, but the sword. I have come to set man against father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Because whoever loves his father or his mother is not worthy of me, and whoever does not, sorry, whoever loves his son or his daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life will find it for my sake. When he says to take up your cross, the cross is the sign of the covenant. We need to bear the burden of the covenant every single day and be a testimony to the people, not to blend in. And you also remember in uh, Deuteronomy 8.2, it says, these are the words of Moses trying to encourage the people to stick by the way, to not be condemned in judgment again. He says, And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And a little further down, he says, Know then in your heart, as a man disciplines his son, the Lord your God also disciplines you. So you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God by walking in his ways and by fearing him. And this goes directly in connection with the Torah portion, where it says, And Moses saw that the people had broken loose from Aaron, and he had let them break loose to the derision of their enemies. Derision, that means, you know, the foolishness or the drunkenness. And the only enemy that they had at that point was Egypt, which is a symbol of the false worship in the world. And Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Whoever's on the Lord's side, come to me. And all the sons of Levi, they gathered themselves around him. And now in half Torah, we see the same thing happening with Elijah when he's asking the people to serve God. Yes. But no one answered him. You know how sad that is? Of the millions of people in the nation of Israel, not one person rose their hand and said, I'm with you, Elijah. And Elijah came near to the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if this master, then follow him. And his, the people did not answer him a single word. Then Elijah said aloud to the people, I, I alone am left, a, a prophet of the Lord. But the Baal's prophets are 450 men. 
In order to be a light into the nations, we have to be willing to bear that cross, to make that stand, to be warriors for this kingdom, to fight for life. When we're a light, we stand out. But if we pick and choose what we're willing to follow, we're weaving a basket, and we're hiding that light. We need to stand out, not blend in. We need to not change Hashem's character into something that we feel is more comfortable or something that's less condemning. We need to be willing to be molded, not mold a calf. And we need to stand strong and to endure to the end or be willing to accept the punishment, which is ultimately going to be the shame. Our forefathers have handed us down nothing but shame. It's our job to cleanse that from our hearts and to stand up and do what is right, to change the path, to walk away from, you could say, this generational curse that we've inherited. And today we need to make that choice every day and declare who we serve by our actions so that like Moses, we can have the countenance of Hashem shining brightly through our faces so that we can be called friends of the Lord. But in order to receive this promise and this inheritance and this blessing, we need to be faithful servants to our God so that he can call us up and call us those faithful servants as he did in Matthew 25, 23. He said, and his master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over little, but I will set you over much. Enter now into the joy of your master. And we need to be careful because we are in the day of prophecy. People are asleep. And we have some people who are waking up to the truth, who are preparing themselves. And if you are one of those people who is preparing yourself, then hold on tight. Because the king is going to call you, just like he did here in Matthew 25, 5. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all came and went to sleep. But at midnight, there was a cry. Here is the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. And all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for your, our lamps are going out. But the wise said to them, Since there will not be enough for both of us, so go, buy some. And while they were out going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. And after, the other virgins came, saying also, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said to them, Truly I say, I do not know you. Therefore watch, for you neither know the day or the hour. And that is your half tour. For today we are going to be covering one of Apostle Paul's discussions on food offered to idols. Now before we get started, I want to ask you guys a question. Is Apostle Paul's letters sometimes a little difficult to understand? Yeah. Oh yes. Even Peter says so. He says they can be difficult to understand sometimes, but unlearned and unstable people will twist his letters to their own destruction. Yes. So what we're going to do, instead of following the majority to do evil, yes. what we're going to do is we're going to look at Apostle Paul's in the context of who he was, a rabbi, a rabbi of rabbis. So, and he's also a very smart person. So what we're going to do is we're going to look through these letters, through his, how he sees them instead of how we want to see them, and see what he is talking about here. So we're going to get started. It's Kitisa, it's 1 Corinthians 8, 4 through 13. And he's starting out his discussion in uh, chapter 8, verse 4. Then concerning the eating of the things sacrificed to idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the world and that there is no other God except one. <clears throat> so before Apostle Paul gets started on his discussion here, 
He wants to make sure that we're all on the same page, that an idol is nothing. But what does this mean? A lot of people have interpreted this to mean, well, since an idol is nothing, you know, I can go eat food off your dials, because you know what? It's nothing. But is that what he's saying? Well, before we come to a conclusion here, well, let's try to figure this out. What does it mean that an idol is nothing, and why is it important that we know this before we even get into the subject? Well, that word for nothing is, it's G3762, it's udais, and it means not even one, referring to a man or a woman or a thing. That is none, nobody, nothing, referring to a man. So, if you know what an idol is, this makes sense. An idol is usually, you know, a statue, like a man or a woman or an animal. And these statues, they have eyes, nose, ears, mouth, hands, feet, so they look like a person. But what Apostle Paul is saying when he says they are nothing, he's saying they are not a person. They may have all these things, like hands and feet and a head, but they're nobody. They're nothing. They're not a man. They're not a woman. So this is what he wants us to know. Okay, so what does this really mean in an application? Now that we know that an idol is not a person, what does that really mean to us? So what we're going to have to do is we're going to start to ask more questions to figure out what Apostle Paul means by this. One of the first questions that's really like begging to be asked here is Apostle Paul, the first one to come up to this conclusion. Is he the first person in all of history to understand that an idol, even though it looks like a person, it has the hands and feet, that the idol is not a person? Is Apostle Paul the first person to realize this? Well, let's no, he's not. We'll go to the Psalms, which is several centuries before Paul, and see what they thought about idols. Go to Psalms 115, verse 4. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but do not speak, eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear, noses, but do not smell. They have hands, but do not feel, feet, but do not walk. They do not make a sound in their throat. So we're seeing right here, the writer of the Psalms says, they have mouths, ears, and hands, but they don't work because they're not a person. They're a statue. So, wow, Apostle Paul didn't come up with this big grand idea that, oh, wow, this little chunk of wood is not a person. <laughs> okay, so, so let's take it back further. Did Moses know this? What of Deuteronomy 4.28. And there you will serve gods of wood and stone, the work of human hands, that neither see nor hear nor eat nor smell. Moses knew about it. He knew that that chunk of metal, that piece of wood, that hunk of rock, even though it had hands and feet, it was not a person. You know, even Abraham knows about this. If you read through the Sages, i got a very hilarious story about Abraham destroying idols. I recommend reading it. And also, in the prophets, Isaiah 44, 9, All who fashion idols are nothing, and the things they delight in do not profit. Their witnesses neither see nor know that they may be put to shame. Who fashions a god or casts an idol that is profitable for nothing? So, we see all over the place, it was no secret that idols are not people. <clears throat> idols have no power. Idols, even though they got feet, they can't walk, they can't do nothing. So, why does Apostle Paul want us to know this? Why, why is it so important? Well, what we're going to do, the prophets actually tell us. We're going to Jeremiah. <clears throat> because why did he point out that the idols are nothing? We're going to Jeremiah 10.5. Their idols are like scarecrows in a cucumber field, and they cannot speak. They have to be carried, for they cannot walk. So, a scarecrow is designed to look like a person, right? It's supposed to scare away the crows. But it's not a person. They can't do anything. So, what does this mean for us? Well, Jeremiah continues. Do not be afraid of them, for they cannot do evil, neither is it in them to do good. So an idol might have feet and hands, but it can't go sneak up to your house and pick the lock and steal your stuff. No, it's a, it's a, it's a rock. Okay, and it can't give you a dirty look and make you feel bad. It's a rock. 
It, it, it can't call you. It can't call you nasty names. I mean, it can't do anything to you. Don't be afraid of it. Is what Apostle Paul saying. They have no power. Okay. So this is what he wants to know before we even get into the discussion. Do not fear idols, which is very important too, because as humans we have a tendency to fear everything. <laughs> you know, like uh, for example, you know, it's like all these rattlesnake movies you see in the Southwest. I've seen tourists come to Arizona. And they think there's a rattlesnake under every rock. And they're like, <laughs> just because of the movies make it look so bad. No, Apostle Paul doesn't want us to be that way with the idols. You know, it's like, you know, always, always scared looking around. Oh, there might be an idol. No, he said, don't be afraid of them. Just understand that they are nothing. They're not a person. Okay, now back to the original question that most people think. Does it mean that we can eat food offered to idols? Because we do not fear an idol, does that mean that we can commit idolatry? So before we just come up with an opinion and say yes or no, let's, let's do a little mind exercise here. What are other things that we do not fear? Well, we'll go to King David. David feared no evil, right? You know, in Psalms 23, he says, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of, the de of death, I shall fear no evil. So if David feared no evil, could he commit evil and be just fine? No. Let's say I don't fear robbers and thieves, right? Does that mean it's okay if I go thieve and rob? No, it doesn't mean that. So, just because you fear no evil does not mean you can commit evil. Just because you fear no idols does not mean you can commit idolatry. Just because you do not fear food that is offered to idols does not mean you can eat food offered to idols. <clears throat> it's common sense. But before we just, but still, we're, we're just thinking about this logically here. But we need proof before we come up with an opinion. So, before we get going, what was Apostle Paul's position? on food offered to idols. Well, first we need to, uh, uh, I'm gonna point something out here that might be a little dangerous, so I'm gonna whisper it. <laughs> Apostle Paul's not making his own religion. <laughs> that means he's part of a church. He's a part of a body, an assembly that pre-existed him and is more than just him, right? So that means whatever the church's position is, that means if he's part of the church, he needs to be part of the church. Mm -hmm. Okay, now the church ruled on food offered to idols, right? What was their ruling? Well, the ruling was against food sacrificed to idols, I'm sorry to say. But we'll go to Acts 15, 28. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols, and from blood, and from what has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Okay, so how do we know that Apostle Paul followed the church's ruling? Well, because if he didn't, he would be branded as a heretic, mm -hmm. he'd be given a chance to repent, and if he didn't, he'd be excommunicated. He would no longer be part of the church. He'd be on his way somewhere else and never hear about him again. But since we don't hear about that happening, the only logical conclusion is that he is not a heretic. He has not been excommunicated from the church. He is part of the church. And the church rules do not eat food offered to idols. It's that simple. Now, if you want more evidence, Apostle Paul says imitate Christ as I imitate Christ, right? Well, what did the Messiah rule on food offered to idols? Well, he also ruled against it. You see this in Revelation 2.20. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. Okay, the church ruled against it, the Messiah ruled against it, Apostle Paul ruled against it. Yes. Now, there's more evidence than this, this is just common sense here. So, now... If uh, an idol really is nothing, why is it bad to eat food sacrificed to idols? You know, because 
if an idol really has no power, it has no power to curse you too, right? So an idol is really helpless. It's just a chunk of rock. But <clears throat> let's go through scripture. Who is somebody who tried to curse the children of Israel but could not? Balaam. Yes, Balaam. He could not curse the children of Israel no matter how hard he tried. Just like this idol. The idol cannot curse you no matter how hard it tries. But how did Balaam end up cursing the people? Yes, he got them to curse themselves. This is how the idol works. The idol does not have the power to curse you, but you have the power to curse yourself with the idol, wow. just like Balaam. He did not have the power to curse anyone in the children of Israel, but they had the power to curse themselves. So how does this work? Let's go to Revelation 2.14. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. Wow. So the way Balaam got the people to curse themselves was to eat food sacrificed to idols. Which, how does an idol get you to curse yourself with it? <laughs> By committing idolatry and eating food sacrificed to idols is part of that. Okay, so <clears throat> how did Balaam curse the children of Israel? By getting them to eat food sacrificed to idols. How did he get them to eat food sacrificed to idols? By putting a stumbling block in front of them. So when they fell over that stumbling block, they committed idolatry and ate food sacrificed to idols. So now we're going to remember this concept because now we're going to look at the last part of Apostle Paul's letter here that we started with. What, what is his conclusion about this whole food sacrifice to idols thing? He says in 1 Corinthians 8, 9, But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. Okay, same word here about Balaam putting a stumbling block in front of people. Balaam's stumbling block made people eat food sacrificed to idols, thus cursing themselves. What is this stumbling block that Apostle Paul is afraid of? What does it do? For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? It's starting to sound like the same stumbling block that Balaam put in front of the people. But instead of doing it on purpose like Balaam did, Apostle Paul is warning us, be careful that we don't do that too. Because what happened when the people tripped over Balaam's stumbling block and ate food sacrificed to idols? What happened? Apostle Paul said 23,000 of them died in a single day. The people were destroyed because they ate this food sacrificed to idols. So what does Apostle Paul say happens when you eat food sacrificed to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother from whom Messiah died. This is the same scenario that Balaam used to destroy the people of Israel. And this is the point of Apostle Paul's letter. He's saying, don't be afraid of those idols, they're helpless. But don't be negligent. Don't accidentally do what they, Balaam did on purpose. Don't put that stumbling block in front of your brothers and sisters, which will cause them to eat food sacrificed to idols, which will then destroy them. You don't want that. You know, and it's not just for their sake, it's for yours too, because if you do this, that is a sin. Mm -hmm. Thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, and you sin against Messiah. So any, does any of this kind of point to the idea that we should eat food sacrificed to idols? No, it doesn't. Because what happens if you eat food sacrificed to idols? Cursed. <laughs> You're cursed. You, you've cursed yourself with the idol. And then as the process goes, then you become destroyed. It's not a good thing. So one thing to watch out for when Apostle Paul is giving a discussion. He usually has a, has a therefore somewhere hidden in there that gets, gets the point across. 
The therefore in this is this. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Apostle Paul didn't say, oh, go eat food sacrificed to idols. He is saying, don't eat food sacrificed to idols. You see this everywhere. When Apostle Paul is saying, don't do something, we're like, oh, I can do it. That's not the case. Okay, so now we have another important question. We, we, we know that we're not supposed to fear idols, right? <clears throat> because they're powerless to hurt us. But at the same time, we're not supposed to eat them or get other people to eat them because we can destroy ourselves with them, right? Because, you know, it's like this little two-edged sword. They're helpless over there, but we can take them and do a lot of damage with it ourselves. So how do we, how do we make this little balancing thing that Apostle Paul is trying to teach us here? Well, two chapters after this, he tells us. So how do we not fear an idol and avoid making a stumbling block is our question here. In 1 Corinthians 10, 25, Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Okay, so why? It's because we're not supposed to fear idols. We're not supposed to be running around in, in, in a state of complete fear. So just leave it alone. Don't, don't be on a witch hunt. When you go to the meat, meat market, you know, don't pull around your lie detector and hook it up to the guy you're buying the meat from. Do you have idols in the back? I need to look. <laughs> you know, I was like, don't worry about it. These idols are helpless. They're worthless. They're pointless. Don't, don't worry about it. Then it goes on. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any questions on, question on the ground of conscience. Why? An idol's nothing. They're powerless. They're helpless. They're worthless. But you always have to look out for the ifs and the buts because they're very important because Apostle Paul has both right here. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. So there's two things here. What happens if you knowingly eat food sacrificed to idols? Well, you're, you're, yeah, you're consenting to the sacrifice and therefore becoming a participant on the altar. You don't want to do that. But also for the sake of the person who is there. Now, right here, he has an unbeliever as an example. What happens if, let's say a few years down the road, that unbeliever becomes a believer? He's going to remember you eating that food sacrifice to idols, right? Will that not encourage him to eat food sacrifice to idols? Will that not be the same stumbling block that Balaam used to destroy yes. the people of Israel? Yes. See, this is what Paul's talking about. What we need to do is we need to look at it in context with who he was, where he's coming from, and what is he a part of. He is part of the covenant of Israel. That means we need to understand Paul as part of it. He's not making his own thing. And the ruling here is, do not be afraid, but at the same time, do not be negligent. Walk the straight and narrow path and help guide the people going along with you. And that is the half tour. Today. Yay.